0: Listening to the Hardman Podcast: Reclaiming Biblical Masculinity in a World of Softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. We're going to be talking today about the coddling of the American mind. That's a book by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. I highly recommend this book. It's very, very helpful. And what I want to do today is just unpack a little bit about the book as well as a few main points, hopefully whet your appetite, and that will be an encouragement for you to read it. Now, in their book, Lukanoff and Haidt focus on what's been going on in American universities among young people since around 2013. You see, 2013 was a pivotal year. It was the year that Black Lives Matter movement began, of course, following the Trayvon Martin shooting, and it was the year when iGen, that's our current most recent generation, those born around 1996 and following, began arriving on college campuses. And so a lot of the changes that are happening in our culture can actually be pinpointed to 2013, many of which those events were not happening before. Haidt and Lukanoff describe in their book, 2013 really was a keystone year. We saw things like the tensions on college campuses rising, and even reaching a fever pitch. Groups like Antifa began protesting. This became common. We saw the destruction first at Berkeley uh, following the Milo Yiannopoulos speaking engagement, which actually didn't happen, but Antifa showed up and they're destroying the campus at Berkeley. And there were other nationally covered events, including Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson. Of course, this is afterwards. And as we mentioned, Trayvon Martin. Now, in their book, Lukanoff and described describe three major bad ideas that shaped iGen and are shaping the culture today. And I want to talk about those three ideas in just a moment. The authors also talk about how those ideas have radically reshaped not only the university landscape, but the cultural landscape. So this has affected college campuses, media relations, media companies, how those interact with daily life in America. Those ideas, which we'll unpack in this episode, help explain where we got concepts like safe spaces, trigger warnings, snowflake generation, and the concept that emotional trauma could come simply from being exposed to opposing viewpoints. It helps explain why college campuses almost entirely lack viewpoint diversity, both among the students and among the faculty. In their book, the authors unpack the unyielding totalitarian and cultural Marxism that's been swallowing universities whole since the 1970s. They also interact with the way in which this has shaped the total culture. We'll look at why this is bad for America and how it was the perfect seedbed for critical race theory, intersectionality, and Herbert Marcuse's philosophy of what he calls liberating tolerance. An idea that is part fascist, part Marxist, and means canceling and silencing any voice that does not originate from sexual, racial, or ethnic minorities. As I said in the opening, for my money, The Coddling of the American Mind is one of the most important books that I have ever read. Interestingly enough, it's written by two men who say in the book that they voted for Obama. They are lifelong Democrats and liberals. And yet they do a phenomenal job unpacking the destructive effects of the new left. Almost every cultural fault line we're dealing with today in our culture is a result of the ideas that are described in this book. And so it's for that reason that I can't recommend this book highly enough to you. What I want to do now is jump into the three bad ideas that Lukanoff and Haidt really detail in their book. The first bad idea is this, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. This is the myth of fragility. It's the view that our children are like clay pots and we must avoid putting them in any situation that would damage them, not only physically, but also emotionally. Adversity, opposing viewpoints and criticism in this view are all forbidden. This is where we get the helicopter parent generation and what Haidt and Lukanoff call safetyism. Both of the authors use the example of the peanut allergy to unpack just how our culture raises overprotected and therefore immature people because it views them as fundamentally weak. Reared by a generation of helicopter parents who thought the best way to alleviate peanut allergies was to ban them from preschools and daycares, studies have actually shown that peanut allergies actually increased with the more banning of peanuts that happen in schools. As the authors point out, the reality is it was exposure to peanuts that actually made kids stronger and build up tolerances. So what it shows is that there's a desire to protect children from something as simple as a food allergy, but often it has the opposite effect of what was intended. This is true not only for food allergies, of course, but for the rearing of children in general. The authors write this quote, By shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't actually risky at all, and we isolate them from adult skills that they will one day have to master. Teaching kids that failure, insult, and painful experience will do lasting damage, while well, this is a harmful, ideology in and of itself. Human beings need physical and mental challenges. They need stressors or else we deteriorate. End quote. Likewise, the authors detail how, from seatbelts to car seats, we've been increasingly obsessed with what they call safetyism. There's been concept creep here too, so that it's not just that we're obsessed with physical safety, but now we're obsessed with emotional safety. Translated to the university context, this means difficult material in a college sociology class now has to come with a trigger warning. Otherwise, it might offend the delicate emotional balance of today's young adults. The result of all this, of course, is what we call the snowflake generation. It's a generation that's not stronger but weaker than ever, and scientific research points this out. Rather than being emotionally resilient, teens today have higher rates of depression, they have higher rates of prescription drug use, and they have higher rates of suicide than any generation before them. As the authors point out and encourage us, it's to embrace the truth that Nietzsche pointed out originally. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In other words, adversity, hardship, and opposing viewpoints are the necessary context in which we mature we develop stronger convictions and we build emotional anti-fragility the second bad idea is this you should always trust your feelings focusing on cognitive behavioral theory the authors unpack the myriad ways in which students are encouraged to engage in what they call emotional reasoning that is Letting your feelings rather than objective facts or evidence guide your interpretation of reality. For example, if you perceive a microaggression in someone else's action, which is to say someone slighted you or someone else for perceived racial or sexual or ethnic prejudice, then it must be true. Simply feeling it or perceiving it makes it true. Regardless of what other people's actual intent was, Young people are trained to base reality on their feelings and emotions and often to read the worst into other people's actions. Haidt and Lukanoff both point out this is extremely unhelpful and is the perfect recipe for building divisions and hatred between different groups. What is the result today? Well, the result is that we have a generation that is easily offended. It does not think clearly about important ideas. It cannot engage with opposing viewpoints. And it's a group of teenagers and young adults that are full of constant anger at any perceived slight or injustice. If you've been following the Black Lives Matter movement at the present moment, you've seen this. These young teenagers or 20 somethings crying in their rooms about Donald Trump, not offering any critical, rational argumentation, but simply, he's a fascist. He wants us all to die. Why is he doing this to me, right? This isn't mature adult thought. This is what people with infantile ways of reasoning or emotional reasoning tend to do. So again, our generation is fragile. Among other cognitive behavioral distortions, the authors point out, our young people are being trained in dichotomous thinking, overgeneralization, and catastrophizing. When a speaker with a conservative viewpoint is invited to campus, whether it's the libertarian Charles Murray, the conservative Ben Shapiro, or Milo Yiannopoulos, students are more likely to protest, riot, shout slurs, or block speakers from being able to enter the building, rather than critically engage opposing viewpoints. This is where cancel culture comes from as well. It's the idea that a opposing viewpoints do, quote, emotional violence, end quote, and therefore must not be allowed on campus. The third great untruth and bad idea that Lukanoff and Hype point out is this. It is the untruth of us versus them. This is the idea that life is fundamentally a battle between us and them. It's polarization and often relies on dichotomous thinking. Rather than seeking shared ground to begin discussions and engage in helpful, critical dialogue, college campuses today are often one-sided. Virtually all faculty is left-leaning, something that the authors point out, and universities are totalitarian in the viewpoints that they allow. This results in really an insular experience for students. Those same students are not taught to engage difficult and diverse views, but instead, They're trained to shout people down. Anyone who disagrees with you, well, you cancel them. You get them fired. As we mentioned before, if you have speakers that come to campus with opposing viewpoints, instead of listening carefully, taking notes, and then formulating an argumentative response, what do students do? They petition, they protest, they block the entrances. Sometimes they vandalize and commit felonies. With bricks in hand, they scream to the faculty, This is doing emotional violence to us. And so what they usually call for is for the speaker to be banned or a faculty member to be fired. As the authors point out, universities ought to be places, and often used to be, where ideas from all angles should be examined. They should be critiqued, and students should be challenged to think more critically about their own beliefs. If there's ever a place where ideas ought to be sparred over, it should be the college campus. But that's hardly the case anymore, and it's largely because the students of today demand safe spaces. Likewise, a focus since the 1970s on identity politics, that is, political mobilization organized around race, gender, or sexuality, has led to greater polarization as students are taught to think of every relationship in terms of oppressed minorities and oppressive majorities. Rather than focusing on our shared humanity, identity politics stresses racial, gender-based, and sexual divisions, and it creates an us-versus-them mindset, always between the oppressed and the oppressor. Now finally, the authors talk about a prominent philosopher in the 1970s who became a sociologist and teacher in America, and that's Herbert Marcuse. Now Marcuse left Nazi Germany to teach in American universities. He is the father of what we now call the New Left. It's really a blending of Marxism with cultural themes. Instead of focusing on economic inequality, Marcuse and others focused on civil rights, women's rights, and other social movements promoting so-called equality and justice. In a 1965 essay, Marcuse argued for what he called repressive tolerance, which meant that free speech should be granted only to minority groups and specifically not to what he called the oppressors. So if you're part of the majority, if you're a white Christian man, then you're not allowed to have an opinion or a voice. This is where we get the concept today that white men or other majority groups aren't allowed to address issues like systemic racism or women's rights. We're told that you don't get a say in the matter. Now, since traditional values and those who represented them, things like Western family structure, monogamous marriage, heterosexuality, since these were all labeled by Marcuse as ideologies of hate and progressives, well, they were the ideology of humanity. Well, then everything opposing leftist thinking was labeled hate speech. Further, Marcuse argued that it is acceptable to use repression of quote-unquote hateful ideologies and severe indoctrination via public education to suppress traditional ideas and push progressive Marxism. He argued that quote, true democracy might require denying basic rights to people who advocate for conservative causes or for policies he viewed as aggressive or discriminatory, and that true freedom of thought requires professors to indoctrinate their students, end quote. Well, the end goal of Marcusean revolution, which is what he called it, was not equality, but a reversal of power. One of the most dominant and current forms of Marcusean philosophy today is found in what the authors call critical race theory. Now, oddly enough, The Southern Baptist Convention, as well as the PCA and other evangelical groups, have been deeply corrupted by the embrace of critical race theory. What many don't realize is that critical race theory, or CRT, is a thoroughly Marxist and anti-Christian doctrine. Now, consider this. At the last SBC convention, CRT was actually adopted as a helpful analytical tool. SBC president J.D. Greer argued in favor of it, as did others, and many pastors today are still pushing it, including Tabithian Wabile, Mark Dever, J.D. Greer, and others, voices that we normally thought of, in the reform camp at least, as conservative. Well, now they're embracing Marxist-Marcusian critical race theory. We've also seen CRT play out recently with the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, and specifically the Evangelical Church's support of Black Lives Matter, another organization framed in the Marcusean school of repressive tolerance. To give one example of how Marcusean ideology is a danger to the church today, I want to share a brief Facebook post written by one of my former seminary friends who attended Mark Dever's church and has been an outspoken supporter of CRT. He said this, White friends. Listening to and amplifying the voices of black people is precisely one of the things we should be doing right now. But I see some of you selectively amplifying the voices of a handful of black people whose opinions on race and racism are beloved by white conservatives but are tremendously out of step with the majority of the black community. This is wrong. It is intellectually dishonest. It is uncharitable. It is chauvinist. And it is unloving. There are many ways to be black, and Candace Owens, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, and the like are as entitled to their opinions as anyone else. But when you listen to and promote them, only, to the exclusion of the overwhelming majority of black people who disagree with them, you're silencing the rest of the black community and ignoring an intellectual tradition hundreds of years old. Stop it. Now that's the end of the quote. But what is this man doing? Well, fundamentally, he's trying to do a thoroughly Marcusean maneuver. He's saying that anyone with an opposing viewpoint doesn't count, we shouldn't be promoting opposing viewpoints, and those people, as well as us, shouldn't be allowed to weigh in on the discussion. Unless you have a viewpoint that is in 100% agreement with his own, then you're not allowed to speak. Again, it's this totalitarian repression of ideas. It's a very convenient little trick. You simply disallow any position that doesn't comport with your own. You silence them, you cancel them, you call for people to get fired. Anyone who shares an opposing viewpoint to the systemic racism narrative, for example, is automatically decried as a racist. And even the blacks who disagree with CRT, well, of course, they're Uncle Tom's. Their voices shouldn't count either. Kanye West was an important, prominent voice among the black community until he came out in support of conservative Christian ideas and Donald Trump, and then he was shouted down by the same black community who no longer wanted to hear from him. The same could be said about Candace Owens. As Marcuse pointed out, the goal of all of this is not equality. Instead, the goal is a transfer of power. In the end, all of this is wicked and repressive. Now, I hope this discussion has been helpful. I appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Hard Man Podcast, and I would encourage you to pick up a copy of The Coddling of the American Mind. We've only touched on really a few brief but helpful points, but I'll reiterate what I said earlier. This really is one of the most important books I've read when it comes to understanding what's going on in our cultural moment. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.